Hey there, welcome to Actual Ag. I'm your host, Samantha Bennett, and this podcast is dedicated to answering your questions about agriculture. Not only are those questions answered by me, a graduate student studying these topics in school, but also by specialists that work directly with these topics. So if you want to know if purchasing organic is the way to go, if animal rights are actually important to farmers, or if GMOs are actually bad for you, welcome, you've come to the right place. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Actual Ag. Today's episode is going to be slightly different because there's no guest speaker. So if you're putting two and two together, that's right. You'll just be hearing from me today. Yours truly, your host, Samantha Bennett. Hopefully that's okay with you guys, but I chose to tackle our subject today solo because it's a topic that I've become incredibly passionate about over the years, and it just so happens to be a part of what I refer to as the big three when it comes to understanding agricultural issue communications, which is actually what I'm studying in school right now. So basically what I've designated as the big three are the three major areas of concern for consumers regarding agriculture. And each category can be broken down further and further, obviously, into more specific subjects or areas of interest. But the overreaching three concerns for most consumers are the following. So number one, consumer concerns regarding sustainability. So that can be sustainability of the earth itself due to the impacts we as human beings have made on the environment, or the sustainability of our food system. So can our food system withhold the test of time? Can it withstand a growing world population, a global pandemic maybe, like we've experienced in the last year and a half? I guess we've gotten a really good glimpse of that, (laughs) right? But moving on, number two, consumer concerns regarding human health and nutrition. So this is referring to our diets as humans. Are we as a society meeting the nutritional goals that we have set for ourselves? Or are we even meeting the dietary guidelines that have been set by registered dietitians? Are we food secure or food insecure? Which that's a topic that I'm really excited about because we are going to be talking about food insecurity in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that one. Um, But once again, is the food we are eating and our dietary habits contributing to major health issues that we as a society are experiencing? Um, Are the production methods being used to grow our food safe? So those are just some examples of things that fall under consumer concerns regarding human health and nutrition. And then last but not least, number three, the topic we are going to be setting a baseline for today is consumer concern over animal welfare, specifically the animal welfare of those in food animal production systems. So each of these big three areas of concern for consumers are completely valid. I want to Definitely, definitely hone in on that. These are valid concerns. And I love that we as a people, as a society, have developed to the point to where we can care about these sorts of things. So the fact that these are areas of interest for us, that we've started to ask questions about these things and what insight into how the food we eat every day is made and why it's made the way it is, that's the exact reason why this podcast exists. I love that we have grown so much as a culture, as a society, as a world, that we can ask these questions and that I now have the opportunity to answer those for you. So yeah, once again, I could go on a tangent about why this podcast exists, but brief tangent over, moving on. Today in this episode of Actual Ag, we are going to define the terms 
animal welfare, and animal rights. We are going to differentiate between the viewpoints and implications of both of those two beliefs, and we are going to discuss ways to speak on the difficult topics of animal care and ethics with someone who might have a different viewpoint than your own. So we've got quite a bit to dive into today, but I hope that by the end of this podcast episode, you feel more equipped to define your own opinions as well as express them to others. So let's get into it. So, like I said, let's start by defining the terms animal welfare and animal rights. Differentiating between these two terms is so important. And it's important because I think a lot of people see them as interchangeable or synonymous, and they do not mean the same thing at all. That couldn't be further from the truth. So, before I got to college, I thought that way too, unfortunately, and was proud to be someone that considered themselves as an advocate for animal rights and in the know on animal issues, but as I've spoken about before, I hadn't really even scratched the surface yet on these topics until I got into college and learned the realities of not only animal agriculture, but um, also the realities of animal research and subjects regarding veterinary medicine even. So it's honestly, in hindsight, insane how much that I learned over the course of my four years of earning my bachelor's degree. But anyways, I think it's important to differentiate and understand the definitions of these terms so that you yourself can express your own opinions and viewpoints regarding them. So beginning with animal welfare. Animal welfare includes the idea that animals deserve to live in a state in which they are healthy, comfortable, well-nourished, safe, able to express innate behaviors, and not suffering from unpleasant states. So um, pain, fear, distress, those sort of things. And this definition comes directly from the AVMA website, and the AVMA is the American Veterinary Medical Association, um, if you were wondering. And this concept of animal welfare outlined by the AVMA is also coinciding with the Producer Code of Cattle Care, which is a part of the Beef Quality Assurance Program, or the BQA program, that is run by the NCBA or the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Sorry, I know there's a lot of letters being thrown around, but it's good to know what all these terms mean. So in the BQA certification program, the producer code of cattle care is outlined as being the following. So providing appropriate food, water, and care to protect the health and well-being of animals, providing disease prevention to protect herd health, including access to veterinary care, providing facilities that allow for safe, humane, and efficient movement and or restraint of cattle, the use of appropriate methods to humanely euthanize terminally sick or injured livestock and dispose of them properly, providing personnel with training and experience to properly handle and care for animals, and then making timely observations of cattle to ensure basic needs are being met, minimizing the stress of transporting cattle when they are being transported, keeping updated on advancements and changes in the industry to make decisions based upon sound reasoning, up-to-date production practices and considerations for animal well-being, and then persons who are willfully mistreating animals will not be tolerated under any circumstances. So in 2020, it was reported that up to 85% of beef producers in the United States are BQA certified which is fantastic because that means that 85% of beef producers in the United States have committed their time to learning and becoming certified in the latest and greatest practices when it comes to providing the best care for their animals and producing the highest quality and safest beef for consumers to enjoy. So that means that those 85% of beef producers 
adhere to that code that we just read through, which is a big deal. And this isn't just for cattle producers. So there are similar programs that are in place for all aspects of animal agriculture. Um, and that includes the Dairy Quality Assurance Program, the National Chicken Council Animal Welfare Guidelines, the United Egg Producer Certification Program, the National Turkey Federation Animal Care and Best Management Guidelines, the Sheep Care Guide by the American Sheep Industry, and the Pork Checkoff's Pork Quality Assurance Plus Program. So as you can see, all branches of animal agriculture are covered in these sorts of codes and guidelines. I just wanted to specifically point out NCBAs because it's the one that I'm the most familiar with and the one that I found that 85% of beef producers are coinciding with, which is great. Now that we've defined animal welfare, let's define animal rights. Animal rights includes believing that animals have intrinsic rights that should be guaranteed similar to the way that human rights are. These rights include not being killed, eaten, used for sport or research, or abused in any way. This definition comes from the 11th edition of Scientific Farm Animal Production and Introduction to Animal Science by Field and Taylor, which is actually the same textbook used here at Auburn University in teaching our Introduction to Animal Sciences course that I assist with. Um, I help teach the labs for that class as a graduate teaching assistant, and I 100% recommend this textbook to anyone who's looking for a good resource when it comes to easily understanding animal agriculture. It's a great resource and one of those textbooks that I always recommend for undergraduates to actually purchase opposed to just renting it because I feel like it's one that, like I said, is full of good information, it's easy to understand, and it's one that you'll be able to carry throughout either your undergraduate career or just in life in general if you're wanting to learn more about these sort of things. So anyways, moving on, great resource. In addition to that definition, I would even go on to add that because animal rights that term considers animals to have exactly that, the right to their own existence. Um, many that believe in this sort of framework go as far as saying that because of this, animals shouldn't be owned as pets, that they shouldn't be spayed or neutered or given other forms of medical care due to them, the animals, having the quote-unquote right to their own bodily autonomy. So as you can see, there is definitely a difference between believing in animal rights and believing in animal welfare. And it's so important that we have clear and set definitions of these terms because everyone has a different ethical perspective. And that's what makes civilly discussing these topics so hard. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later on. Um, but being able to assign a term to what most accurately coincides with your own beliefs is so important. And it allows for us when communicating with others to more clearly define what our own beliefs are and to more clearly understand what somebody else's beliefs are as well. So having the ability to understand the difference between animal rights and animal welfare is also important when deciding to support or engage with content from different groups. So these can be activists or advocacy groups. And that leads us to another important differentiation as well, which is activism versus advocacy, because there definitely is a difference. And these terms, while they are very closely related, are also very easily confused and used interchangeably. But advocacy is the act of speaking on the behalf of or in support of another person, place, or thing, while activism consists of promoting, directing, or intervening in social, political, or economic reform. And another way that I like to think about this is 
advocacy is considered to encompass a wide umbrella of terms and has many different forms. So while activism is considered a form of advocacy, advocacy is not always considered activism. I hope that that just came out the right way. <laughs> yes, so activism is considered a form of advocacy, while advocacy is not always considered activism. I think that that kind of highlights their relatedness, but also their differences at the same time a little bit better than the definitions can. When I think of groups that advocate for either animal rights and groups that advocate for animal welfare, there are several groups that come to mind. And I'd like to touch briefly on these groups and what exactly it is that they stand for and do as organizations. So beginning with animal rights groups, the two main groups that automatically come to mind when I think of animal rights are PETA, which stands for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and then the HSUS, which stands for the Humane Society of the United States. And these are two very well-known organizations that I'm sure that everyone listening to this podcast has at least briefly heard of at some point. Um, but that's why I definitely want to get into what it is exactly that they stand for and what it is that they as organizations do. So on PETA's website, they describe PETA themselves as being opposed to speciesism, which they describe as a human supremacist worldview, and that the organization focuses its attention on the four areas in which they consider to be the largest number of animals suffering the most intensely for the longest periods of time. And they believe those four areas are in laboratories, in the food industry, in the clothing trade business, and in the entertainment industry. A part of PETA's anti-speciesism work includes banning the term pet because they consider it a derogatory term and that pet owners should be called human carers or guardians instead. Their founder and CEO, Ingrid Newkirk, has even gone as far as saying that she believes, and these are her very own words, people, these are words straight out of her mouth, that pet ownership is absolutely abysmal and that in the end, she thinks it would be lovely if we stopped the whole notion of pets altogether. It's just kind of an interesting take. It's not a traditional one. It's one that I would say even borderlines extremist, or I would actually describe it as being extremism. And what's interesting about PETA is that their organization is one that I would consider to be a mass distributor of extremist propaganda. And they promote themselves as being a defender of defenseless animals. But in all honesty, their track record is somewhat alarming and more closely follows that PETA believes most animals are better off dead than being in the care of human beings. Yeah, you heard that right. PETA's actual actions as an organization more closely align with the belief that they believe that animals are better off dead than being in the care of human beings. But yet, these are the same people that are fierce activists for the world going vegan and for ending animal agriculture completely because they believe that killing animals for the purpose of food production is wrong, is ethically wrong. But yet, they would rather animals all animals, it doesn't matter if it's a companion animal, a food animal, they would rather them all be dead than in the care of human beings. Are these things connecting? Like, I'm not finding the connection between these two dots. So moving on. In Virginia, they have a shelter that they describe as their animal shelter of last resort. 
and reports gathered from the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services show that since 1998, in this shelter, 83.5% of the 49,737 animals PETA took in were euthanized. That means that at this one singular animal shelter run by PETA, they've euthanized 41,540 companion animals. Wow. Take that in for a second. That is a lot of euthanasias at a single quote-unquote shelter run by a vegan-led organization that fights for animals to be seen as equals to humans. The irony is not lost on me that this group that claims our current society is speciesist is the same one that believes that euthanizing stray animals or animals brought into them as opposed to finding them loving homes or giving them proper care is a humane act to avoid them from suffering from hypothetical situations later on in life. Once again, those dots are just not connecting in my mind. And honestly, this is just surface level information on some of the issues that I personally have with PETA. And these issues are similar to the ones that I have with the Humane Society of the United States. And if you're not familiar with the Humane Society of the United States, the organization itself kind of falsely covers its own narrative with the words Humane Society in their name. Because this organization, they do the absolute minimum for actually assisting real humane societies in our country. And they cover it up with using those two words, humane society, in their name to solicit funding from people that are supporters of them and think they're doing good for animals. But honestly, moving on, I could go on for hours and hours about these groups if you let me. And it could be a whole other episode in itself. But let's now talk about groups that actually advocate for animal welfare as opposed to animal rights. So when it comes to animal welfare advocacy groups, I think of the Animal Welfare Institute and the Animal Agriculture Alliance. Those are the two groups that come to mind first thing. And while I don't completely agree with everything that the AWI, the Animal Welfare Institute, um, believes, like I don't believe in their stance on what they consider factory farming, which that term, we're going to have to do a whole other episode on defining that term and explaining the implications of that term to you guys. I think that would just be a great episode. But I don't really believe in their beliefs regarding factory farming. But I do like that this group believes in the care of animals by humans and the significance and the connectedness of that role and the importance of doing it well. So this group, the AWI, advocates for different legislation in the United States, as well as working towards alternatives to different teaching platforms in schools and for teaching young children the importance of being kind to animals. And this group, in my opinion, is not an extremist organization by any means. They do not call for pet ownership to be a thing of the past or for animal agriculture to be completely disbanded. Um, and that clearly is a significant difference from our friends at PETA. But continuing on, as far as favorites go, the Animal Agriculture Alliance is my go-to suggestion for information regarding not only animal welfare and agriculture, but also any other pressing topics related to animal ag. Their social media and websites is completely accessible and easy to understand and does a great job at advocating for all of the good welfare and otherwise that goes on in animal agriculture today. 
And the organization was actually founded in 1987, but in the past couple of years has really started to get its footing and trending and generate reach, which is great and exciting to hear. And the organization Animal Agriculture Alliance describes itself on its website as being a nonprofit that brings together farmers, ranchers, veterinarians, animal feed companies, animal health companies, processors, allied associations, and others involved in getting food from the farm into our forks. Which I think is great. I love that they take a holistic approach. They see all sides of the story when it comes to animal agriculture. And they take in all the information that all of these different groups can provide. And specifically those on animal welfare, all points of production, I think are great. So definitely check out the Animal Agriculture Alliance for sure. I believe in all of the work that they do. And they always use trustworthy and reliable sources, which I absolutely love whenever they're talking about any of these subjects on their website or in their social media. Um, So check out the Animal Agriculture Alliance. Um, They're a great organization and I deeply, deeply, deeply believe in their interest in animal agriculture and its deep belief in upholding standards of animal welfare. So check them out, guys. That's definitely one of the resources I will be linking in the show notes today. So now last... Certainly not least, let's dive into the difficult subject of communicating your stance on animal welfare versus animal rights with others with opposing beliefs, possibly. So like I mentioned earlier, the reason why this is such a hard subject to discuss is because everyone has their own set ethical beliefs. And every, literally everyone, whether you've put thought into it or not, we all have ethical guidelines that we have created for ourselves. And they differ between individuals depending on so many different factors. Your ethical standpoints can be affected by your religious beliefs, your general life experiences, cultural phenomena that you have experienced, different levels of education, and many other things. But all of that is to say that we are all vastly different when it comes to our own opinions on ethics. And this is significant because so much of our opinions regarding the treatment of animals is built upon ethical ideals. So with that in mind, when you're speaking with someone with opposing beliefs, it's always important to consider that they have a different perspective than your own. And that different perspective is built upon a framework of ethics that most likely differs from your own. So being kind in your approach when speaking on any subject is always something that I recommend because let's face it, you're not going to successfully communicate anything if you're being a jerk. You're just not. Anytime anyone is trying to explain anything to you and they are either being rude or disingenuous or speaking down to you, you're immediately just going to shut down anything that they're saying and not actually take any of it to heart. So always try to be kind when speaking to someone whose viewpoints differ from your own. You're always going to be more successful at communicating that way. In addition to that, make sure that you are genuinely listening to what they're saying and how they are voicing their own opinions and views. Some of the best communicators are so successful at what they do because they take the time to actually listen to the other person's stance on a subject or issue. So understanding the other side of an issue is always going to allow you to better communicate your own opinions and views. And that leads me to what I consider to be the most important thing when communicating with others with opposing views and beliefs. And it's honestly just understanding your own. Before you start speaking on something, whether it's a discussion regarding animal welfare versus animal rights or differences of opinion on anything, honestly, you just need to understand why you have the viewpoints that you do and be well informed on the subject. 
So opinions are great. I mean, literally everyone has an opinion on everything these days. It doesn't take a lot to form an opinion. It doesn't take a lot of brain power. But being well-informed on a subject and having an opinion on it is always going to give you more strength and power when having discussions with opposing viewpoints. So knowing your facts and pulling them from reliable resources is a great thing to do. If I had a dollar for every time someone has cited a Netflix documentary, well, <laughs> I like to call them mockumentaries because honestly, you can put anything in a high production movie format and people are going to believe it if you label it as a documentary. And I'm sorry if I'm bursting anyone's bubble out there, but a Netflix documentary is not a reliable resource. If the information isn't coming directly from an educated expert on a subject or from a verified authority or organization or group or directly from peer-reviewed research, it has little merit in backing topics like the one we discuss in this podcast. So make sure that you are getting reliable resources that you are collecting facts from and that they accurately represent what you are talking about. So yeah, those are the three main things that I personally try to keep in mind when communicating with someone with differing opinions from my own. Um, and I hope that you guys find them helpful as well. There's definitely times, however, when I've found that spending the energy it takes to have these sort of conversations just isn't worth it. Because let's face it, these conversations do take a lot out of you. There's a lot of thought that goes into them, or there should be a lot of thought that goes into them. And sometimes... Expending that energy to talk to someone that just isn't willing to be as kind to you or as open and respectful towards you, it just isn't worth it. So if you're dealing with an extremist activist or dealing with someone who just isn't respectful of your own opinions or is just downright ugly or mean to you, I found that it is truly best just to not engage in conversation with people like that and it's better to direct that energy and save that energy for another time another place and I hope that makes sense and I hope that you guys got something out of that and I hope that you guys got something out of this episode of actual ag because that concludes this episode I hope you all enjoyed it and thank you guys for listening we will talk to you guys soon bye concludes this episode of Actual Ag. Once again, I'm your host, Samantha Bennett, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Before you leave, though, make sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast on whatever listening platform you're listening on. And make sure to follow us on Instagram as well, at actual underscore ag, to stay up to date on what topics we're going to be discussing and to send me your questions on agriculture. Talk to you guys soon. Bye, y'all.